Well, we are reaching our penultimate podcast for this season of Kentucky Deceased. But I'm happy to say that based on the responses from everyone, we are definitely going to be coming back for year three. So I want to do a little plug before we get into the second to last episode for next year. I'm debating on topics. Uh, This research has actually unearthed many more interesting and fascinating cases about murders and trials in Frankfurt that I would love to share. However, I also have been gifted the telling of many more ghost stories, so I'm kind of on the fence. I don't know the best way to go next season, and I welcome input and feedback. Most importantly, I welcome anyone who's got a ghost story or cryptid or unbelievable, unexplainable event in Frankfurt to contact me so we can chat. Uh, This episode, we're going to be talking about a very famous trial that has, in some minds, lived on and in some not. (laughs) I'll explain what I mean in a second. And uh, next week, we're going to be doing our season finale with the long-awaited update to the Ouija board case. I cannot wait to share it with you. And without further ado, we're going to get started. Several months ago, I think if we go back in time now to early June, maybe late May, I was downstairs at the Capital City Museum in Frankfort, Kentucky, working on a temporary exhibit case that we were putting out in our downstairs hallway. While I was doing this work, someone from a neighboring institution came by to visit, which I love. I love it when people visit. And they were talking to me about a piece of local lore that stood out in their mind because the case involved questions of drug usage and mafia and insurance fraud. And the more they were talking about it, the more interested I became. In fact, this conversation was one of the primary drivers for the thematic approach to this season of Kentucky Deceased. This trial is none other than the trial of Jack Pagato. This episode, we're going to hear not only from me as I share some research, but also from a gentleman named Russ Kennedy. If you listened to the first season of the program, then you heard him regale us with stories of a wild creature stalking the hills of Peaks Mill. Or if you have been on any of the downtown history tours, then you have experienced Russ doing what he does best, which is put on an informational and wonderful show. When I first started asking around about this trial and I roped uh, city historian Beth Shields into helping me with research and doing, honestly, the bulk of the research, she learned that Russ was involved to some degree in this trial. And a few weeks ago, I asked him about it and it turned out he was. And he had more memories than he originally let on. So I'm going to intersperse his recollections with some of my own research, and together, hopefully, we will paint 
a full and cohesive image of this series of events. So let's go back in time now to 1974. This is a very pivotal time in Frankfurt history, and I'm going to let Russ talk about what the community of Frankfurt was like. Much like today, only smaller. More Mayberry. Was downtown as active? Like more so. Way more so. Downtown was a hub of activity back in those days. Saturday mornings were fun. Downtown banks were open on Saturday mornings. Yeah, and uh, cars and the stores, a lot of stores, a lot of retail downtown back in those days. Main Street, uh, St. Clair, um, jewelry shops, clothing stores, women's stores. Uh, it was it was a hub of activity. I would come to town, I was back in the 60s now, I'm going back to the 60s, I guess. 60s, I was a paper boy. And uh, I came downtown on Saturday mornings, and I went to the State Journal office, where the clerk's office is now, and I went in the carrier's room, and I paid my bill for my papers, and then I walked right up to the bank here, the farmer's bank, what well, was farmer's bank then, um, where First Federal is now. I walked up there and, and put my little bank deposit in there, my $15 or whatever it was, 16 might have been a real good one, might have got a tip, might have been 17 and I put my little, you know, and they'll walk over to Fitzgerald's and see if there's anybody hanging out in the record shop. Um, go down to Musi's, get a cup, go down to Serafini, see who's down there. But it was a it was a hub before it spread out to East Frankfurt and, and West Frankfurt. And I guess Eastwood Shopping Center was the first, probably major, the, the first retail area beyond downtown. So against this rather idyllic picture of a bustling downtown community, let's start talking about this truly larger than life character named Jack Pagato and his wife, Jean Pagato. Uh, Jack was, um, Jack was bigger than life. He was a promoter, uh, he was a personality, and he was a hell of a cook. He knew how to run a restaurant. Um, personable, loud, and he did his share of visiting with the guests, you know. Um, and, and, and that's about, about what I know. I know. I know him in the restaurant. When he left the restaurant, I didn't know him anymore, you know. And Jeannie the same way. Jeannie was very personable, very attractive. What did it say in your file? She was 51 or something like that. Um, never met a stranger. Friendly. Gene and Jack Pagato moved to Frankfurt in the early 70s. They actually moved here from Lexington, Kentucky originally, even though I have heard oral stories indicating that they either moved from South Dakota or they moved from Detroit, but in fact, they moved from Lexington. The primary reason that they moved to Frankfurt was to open a restaurant, and they did. It's known as Pagados, even though the formal name was a little bit longer. 
And together they ran this restaurant. Jean worked at the front of the house and helped bartend and actually taught Russ Kennedy a lot of what he knows now when it comes to bartending. And Jack Pagato served as the cook, as well as the lead business owner, restaurateur, all of that good stuff. Both of them had been married before. Jack Pagato had actually been married several times, and Jean Pagato had been married at least once. And she had a daughter from her previous marriage who lived with both Jack and Jean in their neighborhood of Inverness here in Frankfurt. The restaurant opened in the winter of 1973-1974, and the primary thrust behind the instant success of the restaurant was the personality of Jack Pagato. And this personality actually led to a close involvement with the local radio station, which is how Jack Pagato ended up hiring Russ Kennedy as the weekend bartender. Uh, it would have been early on by the time that, that, that he opened, um, because at the, time, at the time he opened, um, he, he was a promoter. And Hatter and I were both working at the radio station down here on Main Street. Mm-hmm. Hatter was the AM guy. I was the FM guy across the hall on the other studio. And then the news guy was in the middle. Um, but Pagato would go to work early in the morning, as restaurant tours often do. He'd get over at crack of dawn or pre-dawn. He would fix up a big styrofoam thing of breakfast and bring it to the station. And he would give Hatter and he'd give me and give, and um, that was one slick way to get on the air, you know. And of course, we're talking about how good it is, and he's there in the studio with us, and he's talking, 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 and he's getting hundreds of dollars worth of free publicity for bringing us good food over to the to the radio guys. And uh, that's where I met him. That's where I got to know him. A little bit, and we became friends a little bit, like Hatter, and you know, not not hanging out, but friends. And I, I don't remember the exact cir- circumstances, but he suggested that I come to work for him uh, and become their their weekend bartender, because that was her busiest time. And Jeannie was doing most of the bartending. That's his wife. She would do most of the bartending. She was hostess. She was floor manager. And most of the bartending. Now, there was another waitress who worked there that was a very good bartender, too. And, you know, if it's really busy, the girls get their own drinks. You know, if they got a table and they want a whiskey sire, they go back there and get it and take it to them because they didn't have a bartender. And so I went to work for him on Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, three nights a week. Nights a week from I went in I think about five o'clock or something like that and worked till close. Made a little extra money on the side. I didn't know anything about bartending. I have never bartended in my life, other than to get my own out of the kitchen. Uh, that was the end. But um, Jeannie ta- taught me. Uh, Sarah Rogers taught me. Um, I even had one time where one of my customers taught me. I was working one, I don't remember the circumstances. This guy was from out of town and he came in. Uh, was a doctor, as I want to say. And he sat at the bar and he said, do you know how to make a flaming brandy? And I said, no. 
And he said, if I show you how to make a flaming brandy, would it be your treat? <laughs> I said, sure. Sure. So he said, um, give me one of those big brandy snifters over there. Okay, so I got him that. He said, bottle of brandy. And uh, he poured a little spot of brandy in the bottom of this big snifter. And he laid it on the bar and started rolling it back and forth, rolling it back and forth. And he's coating the inside of this glass with brandy. Then he reached his pocket, got out a cricket lighter, and went poof. And this, this flame comes up. Okay. By now, we got an audience, see? We got an audience. And what did he, he lets that burn for a minute, and then blows it out, knocks that brandy down, and then everybody clap. So he said, now you fix one. And I did. I'm rolling. And uh, we had a pleasant time, and then in time, he got a table and sat down and had dinner and all that. But when he left, he left me the biggest single tip I ever got. He left me 100 bucks. In 74, that was a lot of tip. Yeah. And, uh, but I didn't know nothing about bartending. I could make a highball. I could do a martini. Uh, but when somebody wanted one of those after-dinner drinks, I had no clue. I had me a little book. But hell, by the time I could look those recipes <laughs> up in the little book, they done left. <laughs> you know. Um, but thank goodness I had Jeannie and Sarah who would who would help me get through um, the ones I couldn't handle. So while not directly related to this case, I opted to leave the story about the highball in this, or the flaming highball in this podcast, because I think that Russ does a good job illustrating the social atmosphere of Pagados at the time. By all accounts, Pagados as a restaurant was doing fairly well. It had been open for several months, and it was the place where people would go. It was thought of as like the wealthy, nice Italian restaurant. It was the place you would take your family when they came to visit you in college, if that <laughs> makes any sense. Uh, you can tell I still kind of have a collegiate mindset from my days as a professor, I guess. But it was a very well-respected place. And... Part of the reason it was so well-respected was because of Jack Pagato's previous restaurant experience. This was not necessarily a new industry for him. However, this success was met with an abrupt and dramatic end on August 20th of 1974. That morning, Jack Pagato was going to open the restaurant a little after 5.50 a.m. And on the floor of the restaurant he discovered his wife, Jean Pagato, deceased. Knowing what we know now, we know that she actually died the morning prior, sometime between 11 p.m. and 12.30 p.m., and her cause of death was strangulation. At the time of death, she was 51 years old. There were a lot of rumors right out of the gate about the potential cause of death. One published in the State Journal, as well as the Herald-Leader out of Lexington, was that they believed that there was an attempt at robbery, as there were some indications of this. However, there were not really strong reports officially about any motive or cause or even suspect, and 
Interestingly, especially compared to some of the other cases we've looked at this season of the show, there's less of a focus in these early articles or the early newspaper articles on the death about the actual motive and process of seeking any type of hmm, guilty party in the case. Part of this, I think at least locally, might be due to popular rumors that were circulating around Frankfurt at the time. You know, a lot, there was a lot of local speculation. Like, for instance, how does a, how does a restaurateur, operator of one of the most successful, swanky restaurants in Detroit, Michigan, wind up in Frankfurt, Kentucky, in the Long Branch Saloon. How does that happen? How do you come from Benelli's in Detroit to Frankfort, Kentucky? Even on vacation, how does that happen? He even, Jack even kept some of the old napkins that had the swanky V on them. And he loved to talk about Benelli's. And there was a lot of speculation about that. Nobody knew. I didn't know. But everybody, that's the that's where great stories are built. While local speculation was running amok about the potential cause of death, another very significant and dramatic event occurs. Little less than a month later, on September 14th, the entire restaurant is destroyed in a devastating fire. It hadn't been open since Jean Pagato was found murdered. However, this doesn't necessarily explain the cause of fire. From a State Journal article published immediately afterwards, we have the following. Legato's restaurant, scene of an unsolved murder last month, was destroyed by fire early this morning. State arson squads took over the investigation after city firemen spent five hours extinguishing the blaze, which began at 12.20 a.m. Jack Pagato, the restaurant owner, was in town Thursday, but authorities were unable to locate him this morning. August 20th, Pagato's wife was found inside the Holmes Street restaurant, strangled to death. City and state police were unable to get enough evidence to charge anyone, however. The restaurant had been closed since the homicide occurred. A passerby noticed smoke coming out of the one-story brick building this morning and reported it to the nearby North Frankfurt Fire Station. Floyd Crane, assistant fire chief, said the structure was engulfed in flame before the firemen arrived. He said that the fire appeared to have started near the front of the building since most damage was concentrated there. Nothing was left today but the brick walls, steel beams, and ashes. City and state police declined to speculate this morning on whether there may have been a link between the murder and the fire. Even though the arson squads investigate and the police are presumably investigating the murder of Jean Pagato, things kind of settle down until over a month later on October 30th. So we are right around a, a meaningful anniversary in this case when Jack Pagato is arrested at his home in Frankfurt and charged with murder and arson. He is able to post a $5,000 bond for murder and a $2,000 bond for a burning charge is what it's listed as. So very clearly he is getting arrested for arson. What's unclear in the articles is that they do discuss him being back in town, implying that he is not currently living here and instead is back 
taking care of something or visiting, that part is sort of um, difficult to suss out. After he postponed, we don't really have any news on Jack Pagato until the following year. And in 1975, in that spring, on March 18th, jury selection in the murder trial begins. The Commonwealth of Kentucky is represented by attorney William Brooks, and the defense attorney is the incredibly famous Kentucky defense attorney William Johnson, also known, at least locally, as Big Bill Johnson. So uh, Bill Johnson has an incredibly amazing CV and roster of clientele, so I recommend looking him up if you have not done so yet. And unlike our other cases, I want to spend a few minutes talking about jury selection and the jury selection process. I think we're all more aware of it now than we used to be, especially with the advent of all of the really phenomenal true crime podcasts and shows, of which this podcast does not claim to be in that category at all. However, jury selection, or voir dire as it's known, is a, is a really interesting psychological game. Uh, my mom, who is an attorney, she and I always kind of liken it to the show Survivor, where you have to predict the moves of those around you. So voir dire process, at least for trials that I have witnessed, goes a little something like this. Both attorneys will interview the room of potential jurors kind of collectively. They'll ask a series of questions, and then each attorney will be able to automatically nix a few of the people from the jury. And you have to make this sort of bargain where the questions that you ask will determine if there's prejudices among the jurors that might harm your case. And obviously you want all the jurors to either be in your favor or impartial. However, the other side wants the same thing. So you have to really be strategic about how you approach the process of jury selection. And this trial really renders that clearly. In one of the newspaper articles on the Pagato trial, there is an outright discussion about the jury selection. The interesting thing, too, is that we learn that the prosecution, otherwise known as the Commonwealth of Kentucky, has entered 20 different witnesses into their uh, prosecution like case, whereas the defense has only entered 13 witnesses. One of these witnesses is none other than Ross Kennedy himself, and we're going to hear from him a little bit about his testimony process further on down the line. But to return to Voidir, Bill Johnson's selection and questioning process is something I wanted to share with you all. In the article, they talk about these rumors that were circulating town about Pagato belonging to the mafia, and Johnson actually outright asks the jurors who are a uh, seemingly group of folks who live in Frankfort and Franklin County, if they are aware of rumors that Pagato was one in the mafia and two, that he had killed all of his previous wives. And as a folklorist who studies narrative, I find this question unbelievably fascinating because it points to something that this case brings out in our society and our culture which is the pervasiveness of rumors. Okay, I'm going to get really academic on everybody for a second, so please fast forward if that's not your speed. I really do mean it. I'm sorry, but this is one of my favorite topics, so I want to share it with everybody, and I think it's really fascinating. So when we think about the world around us, 
there's a lot of sensory perceptions that invade our consciousness, right? Like we're constantly seeing things and articulating things and touching things, smelling things, you know, depending on the senses that we have available to us. But one of the primary ways that our world is shaped is through storytelling and narrative, meaning that our worldview, nine times out of 10, is based on these really high level stories that we tell ourselves, not only about our world, but about ourselves. So the narrative that you tell yourself about yourself is the one that you internalize and kind of keep closest to you. Like the main points of your identity, the ways that you articulate yourself, that is like something that you keep with you regardless of how your physical appearance changes. I hope that kind of makes sense. Well, there is a really wonderful and amazing folklorist named Diane Goldstein who has done work on things like viral and infectious diseases, particularly HIV and AIDS. And one of the things that she discusses that's really complicated and simultaneously incredibly like, aha, yeah, is the way in which rumor and narrative can shape something that has like a determinate physical reality. And what I mean when I say that is part of the reason the HIV and AIDS crisis was so horrible in remote communities was that regardless of what scientists knew about how the virus was transmitted, the predominant social narrative was that you could not get it through intimate heterosexual contact. You could only get it through things like drug abuse or heterosexual or homosexual contact contact and that the other ways were safe. What we know about the virus is that's not actually how it works and that there are ways to not be a drug user and not be engaged in homosexual intimate contact and still become HIV and AIDS positive. Same thing happened with coronavirus. If you think about the role of Facebook in transmitting legends or narratives about the virus and how people changed how they behaved based on narratives that they heard and not necessarily on scientific fact, right? So it's kind of this disconnect between I view the world this way because of my experience and what I hear from my friends, where science might say it's this thing, but who cares? Well, to get back to the Pagato trial, I think it's a really good example of this because Bill Johnson and his question about whether or not the jury is aware of these rumors is implying that regardless of any fact that he might present, rumors will bias the jury in ways that are almost unpredictable. So one of the questions he asks is rumors about Jack Pagato killing his wives. And in fact, when I was doing kind of, you know, audience testing, I guess, on this case, one of the predominant things that I heard from people living in Frankfurt today is that Jack Pagato killed his previous wife. So of course he killed Jean Pagato. However, and what Bill Johnson points out immediately after polling the jury on this question is that in fact, of his previous wives, two are going to be witnesses for the defense and one they're unable to locate, but they know she is alive. So how fascinating is that? Like he is saying, like, are you aware of these rumors? But also like these women are alive. However, if you know those rumors and you have internalized this fact about Pagato, 
you're already more likely to believe that he might commit another murder of his wife rather than the verifiable truth that sits before the jury. <sighs> okay, I know that was a huge digression, but we're going to talk a little bit more about rumors, and so I want to put that at the forefront. So this trial is very short. It's a four-day trial, and in the process of the trial, Jack Pagato decides to take the stand. And it, <laughs> I feel like it's not the norm for the accused to take the stand, but every case we've looked at, they have. So... You know, I don't quite know what that means, but I love it. <clears throat> anyway, so Jack Pagato took the stand during the case uh, towards the end. And he enters new testimony into the trial that is very different than anything that the police recorded or that had previously been entered into the, the trial itself. And he even admits on the stand that he did not tell the police the full sequence of events the night of his wife's murder. So... For me, I'm not saying one way or the other where guilt lies here. I don't like doing that. But I will say is please listen to this sequence of events. So Jack Pagato says that on the night that his wife was murdered, which again we know is between 1130 and midnight, he drove to a meeting at the Elks Lodge in order to discuss leasing the upstairs space at the lodge for catering and large events. After the meeting, he came back to the restaurant and he had a habit of circling the restaurant at night for security concerns. He said during the trial, and this is a quote, that the word was out that they were going to get Pagato. So that's a quote. The word was out that they were going to get Pagato. The article doesn't make clear who they is or what they're getting Pagato for, but Pagato discusses how he circled the parking lot several times to see the cars that were parked there and to get a good look at who they were. Ultimately, he decides that they're reputable people in the cars and he drives around to the back of the parking lot and sees that his wife's car is parked there and that she is most likely inside the kitchen because the kitchen light's on. He doesn't exit his car and go into the restaurant. However, he does return home. He does not return to the restaurant until the next morning, where he discovers his wife. Immediately after this series of discoveries, one of the longest lines of questioning in the article is the state of Pagato's physical appearance. He's not described necessarily as disheveled or anything like that, but instead he is described as having a black eye immediately after his wife's death. His stepdaughter, Jean's uh, biological daughter from a previous marriage, remarks that it's a little convenient for him to have a black eye immediately after her mother is brutally killed. But he states that, in fact, he has black eyes because he's been crying so much. During the trial, they actually do note that he doesn't look tearful or woeful at all, but he does have a broken blood vessel under his eye that might be reminiscent of a like strain from crying sort of is unclear uh he also does continue to push the robbery motive and states that the till at the end of the night was missing between 500 to 800 dollars in cash and he has not yet been able to locate his wife's engagement ring which was valued at about 2500 dollars so knowing what we know about Pagato and the questions about 
finding his wife. And, you know, I can't help but internally wonder, like, were you not worried when your wife didn't come home or, like, wasn't home in the morning? That's not broached anywhere. So, like, I don't know if maybe that's a more contemporary pattern of social behavior where you would pay attention to that. I don't know. But I want to share a little bit about Russ Kennedy's time on the stand giving testimony in the trial, as well as what he recalls the morning after Gene is found dead. So we'll start with that, and then Russ will tell you a little bit about his testimony. What I remember most is Pagano calling the radio station uh, at the time uh, that he supposedly had found her body. He called the radio station? Yeah. He's all in tears. Oh, I'm at Jeannie's dead. But I was subpoenaed to testify. And my testimony was very limited. And I don't recall being out there for a very long time. I waited in the little sequester room way longer than I testified. But most of my testimony had to do with what what did I know about the relationship between Jack and Jean? And they showed me a lot of photographs to recognize things. And these were from, from Pagato's restaurant. Do you recognize this? Yeah, that's the back bar. That's the back bar. Does this look like it would normally look when you came to work in the afternoons? Yeah, yeah. Because if you'll, and I told him, I said, if you'll notice, all the doors to the bottom cabinet are open. They were always open because they would not stay closed by themselves. And when I came to work, I would get a couple of little matchbooks off the bar and tear them and fold them and make little wedges to hold the doors closed so I wouldn't bang my knees on them all night long. And there were four or six or something like that. But I said, yeah, that's the way it always looked like. Um, I, I don't know why. So the trial also included evidence, and most importantly, a key piece of evidence, was a tape recorded by Mrs. Pagato's daughter from a previous marriage of Jack Pagato and Jean Pagato having a very heated argument. And during my conversation with Russ, he did discuss about how, on occasion, Jean and Pagata were known for excessively drinking and then having heated discussions with one another. There's some insights about the trial that are later published in an aftermath of the Pagata trial article that comes out in the State Journal. But prior to that article, just to take us all on a linear historical journey... On March 22nd, so four days after the jury selection process, Squire Williams declared a mistrial. The reason being was that the jury was ultimately deadlocked in their decision. So there were five men and seven women in the trial, all of whom became deadlocked. Ten of the trial jurors were voting to acquit Pagato for the case, and two were voting that he was guilty. The main defensive position that led to the acquittal push was that Bill Johnson argued that this case, if anything, proved a gross incompetence of the police. 
Now, I know we've talked so much about trial process and trial, legal, legal, blah, blah, blah. But it is worth pointing out, too, that these cases hinge upon the proof of verifiable, undoubtable guilt, right? You're innocent until proven guilty. So the jury is tasked with the really specific goal of determining the degree of guilt here. And ultimately, they decide or Squire Williams decides that a new trial will be set in order to attempt to represent the case in such a way that a new jury will be able to find fault. Okay, so now we're going to talk about this aftermath article that's written by Todd Duvall that comes out in the State Journal. And this is going to be that moment of the podcast where I read from a newspaper article. However, this is the only one, I promise. And we're going to start a little bit through the article. Although both the Commonwealth and the defendant were adequately served by Prosecutor Brooks and Defense Attorney William E. Johnson, it appeared that the people of the community, including the victim and the man charged with the crime, were shortchanged in the police investigation that followed Mrs. Pagato's murder. From the testimony that emerged at the trial, it seemed Frankfurt police detectives apparently bungled the investigative job, raising the question whether Jean Pagato's murderer will ever be apprehended. Because of the probability of a second trial of the case, police here cannot publicly answer the charges of conducting an inept investigation made by Johnson during the trial. Charges admittedly made for the defense of his client, but nonetheless accusations that are serious and, in some instances, seem to have a basis in fact. Also, it is a disturbing thing when the professional police of a city become the butt of jokes, and during the Pagata trial, it was not uncommon to hear comments such as, if only the police would watch television, they would know what to do, or, the worst of all, if you want to commit a murder, Frankfurt's the place to do it. Bungling the investigation of a murder, or any crime for that matter, is not an accusation that should be made lightly, but it appeared to many people that Mr. Johnson was not indulging in mere courtroom rhetoric when he charged police detectives here with incompetence. Mr. Brooks himself conceded in his argument to the jury, it may be that some police work was not as good as it should have been. An understandable understatement, since Mr. Brooks had to prosecute a case using the investigation as evidence. Some of the aspects of the Pagato trial investigation brought out should provide Frankfurt citizens cause for concern, including potentially the most important evidence in finding Jean Pagato's murderer was not even seriously sought. As Johnson pointed out to the jury, strangulation victims often, in fighting for their lives, have fragments of skin hair, and clothing fibers beneath their fingernails. No attempt was made by either local police or the coroner to take scrapings from Mrs. Pagata's fingernails. Scrapings that, through scientific testing, provided police something of a physical description of Jean Pagato's assailant and the type of clothing the murderer wore. Had there been no challenge to the remainder of the police investigation, this one oversight caused considerable damage to officials' efforts to identify the murderer. The search for fingerprints at the scene of the murder appeared to be cursory at best. The coroner, for some reason, picked up a glass of liquid sitting on a table near the body, thereby possibly smudging what fingerprints might have been available to assist the police. 
The content of the glass was simply poured out before any effort was made to analyze it. The tabletop where the glass stood was not tested for prints at all, nor was a key ring and set of keys lying on the floor. Mrs. Pagato's shoes, found on a salad bar in the restaurant, was never dusted for fingerprints. Although police detectives testified they did not believe fingerprints could be found on the particular surfaces of the table, keys, or shoe, Johnson rightfully said if there was one chance in 100 of finding fingerprints, the test should have been made. It was seven hours after Frankfurt Place arrived at the murder scene before state police investigators and crime laboratory specialists were called in, and even then, the state police were the first to seek fingerprints from Mrs. Pagato's automobile parked behind the restaurant, and a crime laboratory technician was the first person to discover smudges of blood inside the car and a bloody towel on the restaurant bar. Police investigators, like all persons, make mistakes and hopefully learn from those mistakes. But the people of this community deserve to believe they will receive the very best from their law enforcement personnel. And sadly, many did not come away from the Pregato trial with that belief. Certainly, the victims of crime have the right to expect their police to do everything possible to seek out and find criminals. And those accused of crimes have the right to expect the police to have made every possible investigation before seeking an indictment. Unfortunately, however, the Pagato investigation was not the first instance of apparent inadequate police work here, only reinforcing the often heard remark lately, Frankfurt appears to be an ideal location to commit homicide. In another article, also written by Todd Duvall, we learn, too, that Mrs. Pagato's body was moved after the murder was committed and that an attempt was made to clean the crime scene and possibly even relocate her entirely. Additionally, we learn, and I find this very interesting, that the night of his meeting at the Elks Lodge, Jack Pagato actually turned out over 34 minutes late, and the meeting was set to take place after the restaurant closed the kitchen as he was the primary cook at the restaurant at the time. However, all of this surmounts to pretty much nothing uh, because a mistrial is called by the judge presiding over the case, Squire Williams, and he suggests instead that they set a trial for later that year. In the meantime, on July 22, 1975, the arson trial begins, and don't uh, get too excited because two days later, he is acquitted of committing arson. Jack Pagato continues to get lucky because on November 13th of that same year, Squire Williams sits down once again and decides rather than pursuing a retrial in the case that instead the indictment against Jack Pagato is dismissed due to insufficient evidence. So now there will be no retrial, no attempt to pursue any action if he is guilty for this crime. Bill Johnson, the defense attorney for Pagato, says too that he believes that the police force who were investigating this case knew that their evidence was flimsy at best because apparently the warrant for the arrest of Jack Pagato was not signed by any police officer in the city, which is very fascinating. So we're going to fast forward now to July 22nd of 1976 when Jack Pagato is named the beneficiary of two insurance policies on his wife, totaling $120,000. 
the payout of these policies was so late because the death of his wife and the indictment against him implied to the insurance company that he was guilty of the murder and so he would not be receiving the money. However, the release of the trials and ultimate dismissal of his case and the case against arson meant that this implied guilt was um, no longer implied or rendered real. So he was the recipient of these two insurance policies. What I want to say, however, because this sounds horribly fishy, is that Mrs. Pagato herself actually pulled the largest of the two insurance policies in the relationship because she was concerned about the age difference between the two of them. And in fact, the insurance premiums, because of the age difference, were so high that they had agreed that if the restaurant was not meeting its ends or like, you know, wasn't successful enough to continue to pay for the policies, that she would be a waitress instead of a hostess and he would devote all of his time to the kitchen so that they could make ends meet. And this is what they ended up doing for some time in order to pay for this policy. I'm sure with a case as salacious as this one, it will not surprise you to hear that there were many reasons and speculations for the ultimate reason that Jean Pagato was murdered. All of which I want to note do ultimately name Jack Pagato as the primary perpetrator of said murder. Chief among these reasons that I have had repeated back to me is about Jack Pagato's involvement of the mafia with the mafia. However, it doesn't clearly draw the line between why Jean Pagato would be the one murdered. And instead, the the two reasons that are kind of more directly link the two of them are due to financial as well as interpersonal concerns. Very, very young. Jeannie was considerably younger than him. She was gorgeous for her age. Good-looking woman. She was too. I mean, that was her job, was to work the floor. I mean, when I'm there, she's not back in the kitchen. She's working the floor and visiting with all the, the guests and seating people and and uh, she ran the floor he ran the kitchen she ran the floor and you know I, she she could be flirty as were her guests would flirt right back sitting there you know harmless i mean the missus is sitting right here you know not serious just cutting up just cutting up and having a big time and jack was very very jealous they were both prone to have a cocktail, six or seven or eight or nine. And I always thought it had to do with that. That maybe, maybe he caught her, maybe being a little more than flirty or suspected that maybe she was being a little more than flirty. I don't know, I don't have any idea. But I know, you know, sometimes. She'd be at a table talking to people, and he'd stand there giving her the evil eye. And if he'd had a few drinks, I don't know if he'd say that to anybody and her. Sometimes they take a strange turn. Regardless of the reason, after the trial, Jack Pagato is no longer a citizen of Frankfurt. 
And not surprisingly, there's even some speculation regarding his move out of town. The speculation was that the authorities made him a deal similar to the deal he had been made when he left Detroit. And that is get out of our town, never look back, never come back, we never want to see you here again. That is speculation. That's just local folks chit-chatting over a cold drink. I don't know if there's any truth in that. I don't know if there's any truth in that as far as how he got to Frankfort, Kentucky. They always, because of his name and Detroit, they always speculated that he was tied to some crime family or something. I don't know. I don't know. Um... But they thought maybe he came to Frankfurt because he was told to get out of sight or because he was hiding. I don't know. And I think, unfortunately, for those of us who love having answers, the lack of answers in this case, much like the others we've looked at, does present a frustration. This question of why. And it, that does, in and of itself, breed a significant amount of rumors and legends and theories that become social drivers in any community. An example of this is actually from a conversation I had today with somebody who shared with me that when they go golfing, if someone misses a putt, they are called Jack Pagato or just Pagato because they've choked. In listening back while editing this podcast, I realized, much to my chagrin, that once again, my folklorist academic brain is showing where I don't necessarily or inherently realize how horrifying that joke is until later, in part because when you're a folklorist, you spend an inordinate amount of time explaining to college students why dead baby jokes are socially and culturally relevant. And this joke, too, is socially and culturally relevant, so I do apologize for the horrifying nature of it, and I am going to come back in here and <laughs> record a different ending for the podcast. Ultimately, regardless of the factual truth behind the murder of Jean Pagato, why she was killed, the story behind her death, as well as behind the arson of the building. It's fascinating to see the degree to which this story still affects the cultural landscape of Frankfurt. The building no longer affects our physical landscape. However, there are people alive today who remember the Pagatos, they interacted closely with the Pagatos, and... The legends about this case are so, and rumors about this case are so pervasive that they still continually dictate people's responses emotionally and socially to this series of events. And so I just think it's unbelievably fascinating. Anyway, I uh, hope you don't mind the few digressions I made this episode. It's always a treat for me to get to talk folklore theory and weirdly, I don't get an opportunity to do that enough uh, here at the Capital City Museum in Frankfort, Kentucky. But before we say farewell, I want to say a few thanks. First and foremost, thank you to Russ Kennedy for being such an amazing interviewee this episode. 
he came in fully prepared to talk, and then we ended up just kind of going down memory lane by looking at some of the newspaper clippings from the era, which is why at times you can hear me interjecting questions or saying, hmm, hmm, uh, in the background. So I apologize for that annoying audio uh, tidbit. But I also want to thank uh, Russ Hatter, different Russ, for his continued interest and engagement in this case and for his wonderful collecting practices that led to a wealth of amazing newspaper articles that you cannot find online. So thank you, Russ. Also, thank you to Beth Shields for compiling other newspaper articles that were not in this file. See, it goes both ways. And a huge thank you to everybody who talked to me about this case and expressed either interest or disinterest in hearing about it. And a very special thank you to those of you who are listening. If you have enjoyed this season of the show, please like or rate or review us online. Um, It turns out, I think I said last week, that they don't do ratings on Spotify, but they do. It's just kind of nested weirdly until you have enough that you start having a rating displayed, which is insane. Uh, But it really does help us, and it helps promote the show, so it means a lot if you do that. We've had so much continued great feedback and responses to the show, including the uh, Weeping Widow of Stony Creek episode, which gets a ton of plays, which is amazing. I love this season. I love this community, and I love getting to share these stories with you all. So thank you so much, and I hope you have a very safe and wonderful Halloween season. Mm-hmm.